Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that today's episode comes with a Patreon-exclusive mini-episode attached. These new companion mini-episodes will be a regular feature, and you can hear details of how to access them at the end of today's episode. Subscribing is very easy, and for £5 a month you can get access to these new mini-episodes, as well as a brand new set of interviews, with this month's guest being the superstar clarinetist Julian Bliss. The details for this and other ways to support the podcast financially are in the show notes below. Just click on the link, subscribe and join a whole group of fans helping to make this podcast possible. Today I conduct a conversation with a conductor whose career path is similar to my own. After spending time as an orchestral player in London, he's gone on to have an extremely busy and successful conducting career, holding title positions in Sweden, Germany and the United States. It is a real pleasure to welcome Michael Francis. Michael, it's lovely to talk to you today. Uh, how are you? Fine, thanks, Mike. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And what a marvellous podcast series you have going on. So terrific. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, you may be my first double bass player. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can't think of any others. Um, was the double bass the very beginning? How did it start? How did music first come into your life? I suppose Kusevitsky's long gone and you haven't got a hold of Zubin Mehta yet. No, the Havshani, no. he, the Havshani's a bass player, I've seen that. So okay. there's, there's a few of us out there. Um, for me, I started, yes, it was with the double bass. My father was a teacher, so mm. that really kind of got it going for me. Um, because it was the bass, I didn't start that young. I was probably about 10 or 11, came home from playing football one day and said, can I have a go, Dad? <laughs> and he said, sure. And then I got lessons all the time and then just sort of carried on. Um, but because I played the bass, it meant I got to do a lot of good stuff straight away. I think within six months, I remember I was playing Tchaikovsky for, well, not playing Tchaikovsky for, looking <laughs> like I was playing Tchaikovsky for, and touring around communist Hungary with the, the Brighton Youth Orchestra. Wow. So it just meant that I had this fantastic experience. And then my dad um, was obviously doing a lot of the amateur stuff in East Sussex, where I was raised. So he would kind of say, oh, come on, do you want to come along and play? So from the age of 12, 13, I was doing all these amateur stuff and just traveling um, to Brighton, to Lewis, to Eastbourne and doing all the local amateur orchestras. And by the time I was 18, I sort of played most of the repertoire, not necessarily mm. at the highest standard, but just got through a lot of it. So for me, the bass was the beginning and it's a marvelous instrument to learn how to conduct. Mm. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, because you're at the foundation of everything um, musically. For those who are interested to know why the double bass um, immediately gets, you know, gets into the first team, so to speak, um, the double bass, the viola, and probably the bassoon are the instruments that if you can half decently play at any orchestra, oh, yeah, we need bass players. Every amateur orchestra, every youth orchestra is scrabbling around for basses, violas, bassoons, currently in Birmingham French halls as well. Um, and, yeah, it's... Uh, you get straight in there, don't you? And you do, and also you get a great variety. For me, I had the pleasure of playing the amateur orchestras or the classical stuff, but I also got to do um, the musicals. That was mm. fun. Earn a bit of cash, sometimes a bit of jazz. I'm not a natural jazzer by any means, but I got to do a bit of that. And then, of course, bass guitar is not very far away. So when you're 14 and trying to look cool at school, you can <laughs> pull out the bass guitar. So it was just a really great all-around instrument. Um, mm. And you can just... As you say, if you if you own a bass and you know how to tune it, um, you're pretty invaluable <laughs> <laughs> in most 
in most necks of the wood. <laughs> Cruel, but possibly fair. Um, <laughs> go, going ahead. Well, actually, you know, let's stay where we are for now before we go to university or music college. You've met conductors by this point. How what, was it something that interested you from a from that sort of age, or did it come in later during your life? So there was a moment actually where it sort of the seed was sown, and it was in East Sussex, and I was playing with one of the youth orchestras, and Roger Durston, who I think went to Wells Cathedral School, he was the head of music down in East Sussex, and um, and I was being a bit of a backseat driver trying to lead the orchestra from the bottom, which doesn't always work on double mm. bass because you don't have enough notes to direct the melody. Um, but I was doing that and he turned around to my father and said, you know, that boy should be a conductor. And at the time I was thought, oh, what a great compliment. I think what he was saying is he's really annoying playing in the orchestra. <laughs> He'll be safer at the front on the podium. Mm. Um, but from that point, it's sort of something went off in my mind and then when I was at um, school, when I was in uh, 16, 17 in Lewis, um, in East Sussex, then I started to dabble a little bit in it. And I made a decision um, when I was 17 not to go to music college to, to study double bass. I figured at that point, um, I wanted to go to university, sort of get the academics, learn about music analysis, musicology and all these things. And I made that decision to do that. And that was really the, the start of it for me. Um, and then I did some at university um, in fact, when I started conducting, my, I mean, I, you can see on the, on the Zoom call, I've got curly hair, but when I started, my hair was so long, I actually had dreadlocks. Um, so those, my very first time conducting was the Magic Flute Overture, which is quite hard, because you yeah. don't realise how hard it is when you start. And there's people said that my long, curly, matted, awful hair was bobbing up and down in Cardiff University. I mean, I thought I looked cool, but apparently I looked like the back end of a sheep. Um, but So that was... That was my beginning to, to conducting. Um, and then I, I was pretty clear about what I wanted to do from that point. Mm. Were you getting lessons at Cardiff University or the attached to um, a music college in Cardiff from anybody? No, I mean, just double bass. Actually, I've never formally studied conducting. Um, mm. So then after Cardiff, um, I was still very clear I wanted to do conducting. So I went to the, the Royal Academy to, to, to study double bass with Duncan McTeer and I did a master's. But that was because I really thought, well, I, the best thing I can do to be a conductor, I mean, lots of great conductors don't play an orchestra, but for me, I, I knew the best thing for me would be to join an orchestra. So I really practiced a lot on double bass, sort of put the conducting aside, did a little bit, dabbled in a here and there. Um, and then I was fortunate to start a you know, decent-ish freelance career and got a job in the LSO. Um, but that was really my, my way into it. Uh, but even then, when I was there, I, I, I really wasn't doing very much. It was just, I was always looking at the scores. I was always interested in it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, the LSO, what a great place to learn. I mean, similar to me in the fact that, you know, I, I did 22 years in the in the CBSO, but I didn't join thinking about being a conductor. I, you know, I joined wanting to be a, the best violinist I could be, and it later sort of happened. But when you joined the LSO, you know, I'm imagining you're looking at whoever was conducting you week after week after week and picking up ideas, also looking at the bad ones and thinking, my God, I must never do that if I ever become a conductor. What was that thought process like? Were you, were you I mean, obviously, when you join an orchestra at the start, you know, there's so much to learn. But then once you're, you've got your feet under the table and you're playing in a 
a great orchestra like that, a great bass section like that. I'm assuming the mind starts to wander and you're looking at these people in front of you and you're assimilating everything. Yes, and that's a, that's a great question. And for me, it was, of course, when you start, you're just, as you say, just learning to do the job. I mean, mm. the first few years, I mean, the LSO, like all the British orchestras, is extremely busy. So you get through a ton of repertoire and most of which you're doing for the first time. So there's just an awful lot to, to be able to do the job at the high level and everyone around you, I mean, they're so talented. So there was that, but even then when I joined, I mean, the section knew I was always interested in conducting. And I think, you know, quite a few of them said, we know you're not going to be a lifer, um, but, <laughs> you know, come and enjoy it and have, we had a good, had a great time and I loved it. Hmm. Um, and it was just also that variety sort of going from doing Mahler with great conductors and then, being in the studio and doing Star Wars with John Williams. I mean, for me, watching Return of the Jedi in 1983 or whatever it was when I was seven, I mean, that 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 was as exciting to do those sort of things as, as much as it was to be traveling around the world, playing with this fantastic orchestra and of course, playing with great conductors. But yes, I was, I was already at that point sort of clear that I wanted to do it, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. I, mm. I got to do a couple of amateur things um, uh, in London, a few youth orchestras here and there, but really nothing at all. So that those first few years were just learning how to play the bass, learning how to do the job. Um, then I started to be able to really observe the conductors that we had come in. Um, and over time, as I became more comfortable in my job, I could spend more time studying the music and then really thinking about it. But the way it started, I mean, you can't plan the way that my my sort of conducting happened uh, um, that sort of it was an unusual start hmm. well uh, my question was going to be did you have a plan for exit because in in my career that was something that took three of us to sort of work out the chief executive and the and um, his assistant at the CBSO and myself and we sat and worked it out what was your did you have a plan for exit and by the way you've just uh, said what you've just said i'm assuming your your actual exit was nothing like how you'd planned it if you had a, have you if you had a plan <laughs> well if i i mean once i tell you how it happened i think if i had a plan you would think of me as dusty and machiavellian and rather <laughs> dangerous because it would involve poisoning conductors which of course <laughs> i wasn't doing so i mean for me it all began um, back in, I think it was August 2006, and we were on tour in Vilnius um, to do Shostakovich 4 with Gergiev. And we didn't know where Gergiev's plane was. He was flying in on a private one from St. Petersburg. And so Catherine McDowell um, came up to myself and Matthew Gibson, another bass player, who did a bit of conducting as well, mm. and said, look, we don't know where he is. Will one of you take the rehearsal um, now? And he said, no. And I said, okay. And by providence, I'd been studying the music that day and I'm mm. a bit of a nerd and I liked to do it. So 30 seconds later, I'm walking up in front of my colleagues and conducting Shostakovich 4. And that was quite a turning point because lots of things happened, of course, for the first few minutes, they were laughing, taking mobile phone shots. And then I realized I was not terrible. I mean, I was by no means competent, but I didn't embarrass myself. But the feeling of conducting this orchestra was just, it was just incredible. We hadn't played it for quite a few months, so they needed the run through. Um, but I remember a moment when I, I cued the brass and, you know, Morris Murphy was still in the orchestra there and Rod Franks and, and I cued them this and, uh, and then I stopped. Vroom, and this feeling, so like, you're a wizard, Harry. I mean, it was just <laughs> this, this 
I mean, this unbelievable sensation of what it's like to, 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 to drive or to fly this fighter jet. Um, and then Gergiv turned up. And, and from that point, I started to um, do a few more things. And then in January 2007, for his, actually his first concert as um, music director um, or, or chief conductor, uh, he, he didn't do, he was sick. So it was music by Sophia Goodbye Delina and they mm. couldn't find a proper conductor. So they knew that I was pretty good in a, in a pinch. So Catherine said to me again, look, can you get this ready and have the rehearsals ready? We're gonna try and find someone else, but just in case, can you do it? And it was all music by her and they, they didn't manage to find someone to do the, uh, the, the two big pieces. They, they did find Mikhail Yurovsky to do the offertorium with Leonidas Kavakos, mm. who understandably wanted to do with the conductor who'd done yes. it before. But the first piece of the American poem, the fairy tale poem and pro et contra, I did it and I conducted it in the concert. And that I think was the real turning point. So, I, I mean, it was for me, it was a case of just saying yes and not understanding how hard the thing I was about to do was. Um, <laughs> and then three weeks later, and this is why I said if I planned it, you'd think that it was really malicious. Um, John Adams got sick on a tour uh, with the LSO and we were, um, we were in Cologne the night before and he looked really peaky. Um, and then the next day, Lenny McKenzie, the chairman, came up to me in his sort of Scottish thing and said, Michael, John Adams doesn't look very well. Um, do you think you might be able to have a look at the music this afternoon? And I said, sure, no problem. And then that afternoon, just devoured the music as quickly as I could. We had a seating call, not a proper rehearsal. And it was Slominski's earbox. I mean, it's all his own music. Um, the Dharma at Big Sur with Leila Jesusovich. And then what did we do then? Uh, naive and sentimental music. So it meant I was sight conducting in the concert. Mm. And in fact, the, the, the committee of the orchestra hadn't even decided by, by the end of the short little seating rehearsal whether they would let me conduct the whole concert. And in the end, they said, come on, let's, let's give him a shot. Uh, and I did. I managed to sort of get the orchestra through. Um, and at the end of that concert, I mean, there's quite a few things that happened in it. Firstly, the orchestra were amazing. I mean, they'd done it the night before. So it was, they, it was up and running. They, they covered so many of my mistakes. And there was... Um, there was a moment which uh, it was a really typical pit to conduct, and it was in five eights or something, and you get the orchestras in seven and nine. You know, John Adams' music can be so complicated, and he he'd made some mistakes conducting himself. <laughs> and I got through this bit, and rather sort of cheekily, I sort of looked at the orchestra and wiped my brow, and phew. And then I looked down, and then I realised, oh no, I'm lost. <laughs> 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 and then it all it all and it all looked the same and i thought oh no i don't know where i'm going to carry on any four for ages mm. so i did that and then after a while i thought okay there's a three four coming up I, I i can't i can't work out what's going on i'm just going to change so mm. i changed and i changed wrong and then everyone sort of looked up i thought well i've committed now there's a few other time changes i'm not stopping we're going this way everyone mm. will adjust and they did yeah. Except the basses. <laughs> Thanks, lads. <laughs> Those sods in the bass section. Mm. And I cued them. And I remember Renate Bragimov, sadly, who just passed away mm. just um, a month or so ago, um, looked at me, shaking his head, saying, no. I said, please, <laughs> yes, yes. And then, of course, after the concert, there was the usual jokes from everyone. Oh, where were you tonight, Mike? We noticed you weren't playing the bass. And, yeah. la, 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 la. <laughs> so that was really how it started. Um, and then from that point, I was Gergev's assistant in Rotterdam, and I did, for him, um, 
all of the rehearsals occasionally including the general and he wow. would come in for the concert <laughs> that's <laughs> that amazing tense yeah. that was quite a uh, i mean that was an amazing thing to sort of really get to do you know Marla Dassey van der Erde was Brahms Requiem and all the Brahms symphonies and just take the orchestra through it for me it was invaluable mm-hmm. and then in the LSO when he would be late um at, at times and he knows he's reasonably well known for that um Catherine would say in her Northern Irish Michael we don't know where he is um could you have Marla three ready for the morning and I said, sure <laughs> <laughs> no problem <Yeah. laughs> and I had that and it was phenomenal so I, I mean my, my conducting career was really unusual. I learned to conduct, I suppose, effectively with the LSO. And mm. then once I realized I could leave, um, then I started again towards the bottom and, and tried to sort of work my way back up. Yeah. And the way that I left um, was a little unusual. So it was clear that I was going to be leaving to be a conductor and, and the LSO allowed you to go from 100% down to 50% and you could choose the work that you did. And it's getting to the point as I did a bit more conducting and I, I did some jump-ins with Anna-Sophie Mutter and, and I did quite a lot of work with her, and this is around 2009, that I wasn't going to be able to stay in the LSO. And actually Lenny McKenzie is a wonderful guy, the, the chairman of the orchestra, um, who was the co-leader, came up to me and we were in Abbey Road and he said, look, Michael, we, we know that you're um, planning to be a conductor. We just want to know, do you, you, know, you say you're going to leave do you have any sense of times and, and I and I remember I sort of sat down on the base and I felt really awful I thought gosh are they pushing me out or mm. do I what, what do I do and and he wasn't meaning that at all but yeah. it was strange but it was one of those amazing moments because then I checked my mobile phone um, in the next break and it was I had signed with management and they said that oh, we just had a phone call from the North Shopping Symphony Orchestra who want to offer you the position as chief conductor <laughs> And, and I sort of said, Lenny, you asked me a question about an hour ago. Yeah. I said, when am I going to go? I can say, well, look, actually, it's going to be very soon. Yes. And I and took a year sabbatical and didn't come back. So in no way was it planned. Um, but the way that it worked out was, um, was amazing for me, really. Wonderful, wonderful story. Um, I was nodding and smiling away because a couple of those instances, like very late jump-ins I experienced at the CBSO, thinking about being on tour and Andrews Nelson's going ill. And yeah, the, the you know, could you do the concert tonight? You've got half an hour seating rehearsal. That sort of thing. I was smiling away thinking, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> um, but what it brings up is, you know, something that maybe you, you can tell me is it's, it's the way that you, you know, you walk to a concert hall as a player, and then in the next three and a half hours, you become the conductor. And then after that, you know, you may well have people knock on your door and say nice things to you and whatever else, but then you're probably on your mobile ringing up your mates in the orchestra saying, well, where are you? I'll come and have a pint. And then you become back in the orchestra again. And for that period of time, that's quite, I found it quite tricky to take one hat off and put another one back on again. Well, how did you find it? I think, I think you're absolutely right. It is strange because you can't really be both. Um, you know, and to, to, to highlight that, as soon as I could, I sold my base. Mm. I sort of cut off my safety net, said, no, no, I'm going all in. Because for quite a while, I was the bass player who conducted, or I was yeah. sort of a bit of both. 
And for me, it was more for me than anybody else. Psychologically, I, I, I didn't quite sort of have an identity. I was, I'd be doing these great concerts and doing these tours and then sort of going back and next week do a school's concert playing the bass. And, and I felt privileged to be in the orchestra, but I, I was a bit betwixt and between. And I think for the players, it was also clear that, you know, I was leaving and to do something else. And I think for them, it was, well, are you in or are you out? Sort uh -huh. of, um, and I don't think, I, I didn't really, I didn't, I, mean, I didn't know if there any resentment or anything like that. People were very, very good wills, sorry, they had a very good will towards me mm. um, in terms of me going on to become a conductor. There's the usual jibes and jokes about becoming <laughs> the enemy and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, be, taking up conducting, giving up music. I mean, we've, we've all heard <laughs> yeah, the jokes. We've heard them, yeah. That was going to be my next <laughs> question was, you know, um, I found in particular that, you know, that from some of my colleagues, there became quite quickly a frostiness that wasn't there when I was just a second fiddle player. And then there were other colleagues who suddenly spoke to me more often than they'd ever done in the previous 10 years or so. Uh, did you find that? Um, but it sounds like in general, you had, like I did, a very, very, very big sort of feeling of support um, mm. from people. But did you have that, those sort of instances of people you think, well, you know, we seem to be quite good mates, but now you're, you're a little bit standoffish about this. I think there was a couple of, of, of members, sort of older members who, you know, who's this young upstart? Who does he think he is? It was a, I had a little yeah. bit of that, but in general, not. Um, and the bass section was such a tight-knit group and we really socialised a lot and they were very supportive and, and really warm and encouraging yeah. about it. So I, I have to say that really the orchestra were, were marvellous in it. Um, and the way that I was able to kind of drift out of the orchestra um, over time and they were so, what they were so amazing with me about, you know, if I got a call to go and conduct somewhere and to say, you know, guys, can I be off next week? I've been given a call over here. And they'd say, look, we'll make it work. So I really felt, I have to say, extremely well supported. But of course, the transition period for me was relatively short. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing it for many years. It was, it was over reasonably quickly within a couple of years and, and I was gone. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think I was quite fortunate. Well, bravo to the LSO because they have or had the same attitude that the CBSO had with me. Um, mine was nine years. I had the transition from being becoming assistant conductor to finally not playing. Like you, uh, I didn't sell my violin because it didn't belong to me. It belonged to the orchestra. I gave it back the next day. Um, so, you know, that, there, was no, there, was, there was no way of going back to a, to a certain degree. Um, but, yeah, bravo to them. I, you know, more orchestras uh, should have that attitude with players if they want to pursue something like conducting or whatever else um to give them the time and the space to do it and the ability as you say can i go next week yes go we'll make it work we'll sort it out um you know i suppose maybe in the back of your mind like it was in the back of my mind i was thinking about the section i was in and thinking oh dear old second fiddle somebody's covering for me again uh this is a bit unfair and, and that does sort of lead the witness a bit and you think well um, maybe it is time to think about moving uh, and that's when it happened for me when I was kept thinking oh god I've let them down again I'm not in again who have I called in this week who was expecting to have the week off you know and that that was a catalyst I think yeah and I think that that, that does happen but I, because I helped the orchestra out a lot as well with with various things when, when they were in, in trouble I think there was mm. generally a lot of goodwill yeah. in that sense but you're right I mean how was it for you I mean you, you mentioned a little bit about that transition but how was it sort of psychologically going from being a player to a conductor? 
I found it hard on the days where uh, I suspect the LSA have the same sort of schedule where I might be playing for three hours in the morning for the guest conductor that week. And then there might be a three hour rehearsal in the afternoon after lunch where we were rehearsing for a family concert on the Sunday, which I was conducting. And I found it hard going from from my seat to the podium over lunch because, of course, there has to be some sort of line drawn in the sand mentally presumably because you're conducting them you know and I did have comments saying oh you're far too pally this afternoon um you know you're not not being a real conductor you're just Mike stood on the podium um and I found those days very very difficult when it was my turn for a subscription week I might have had the week off beforehand to get myself prepared I found that an awful lot easier having said that because I now I still conduct them very regularly um they're still the hardest orchestra I ever have to conduct because there are people there who remember me as a 21-year-old fiddle player and doing all of the things that a 21-year-old fiddle player does, you know, on tour or, or you know, <laughs> um, on the back of a coach. And so, yeah, that they're still the hardest orchestra I have to conduct, but I love conducting them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it was... And actually, the way I got out, as I've mentioned on an earlier episode, is um, the chief executive and Simon Webb, who was his assistant at the time, who's now at the BBC Phil, said to me, look, why don't you take a two-year sabbatical? Uh, we'll keep your job open for two years. Um, and if you like conducting, well, that's perfect way out. But if you don't, you know you've got the safety net of, of coming back to the orchestra. And it just worked perfectly. Yeah, clearly. I mean, and, and, it's, and it is nice. And how have you experienced sort of coming from being a player? Um, and what do you, I mean, what do you find is the advantage of having played an orchestra? Because um, obviously well, many conductors, great conductors, don't play an orchestra. So no. there isn't one way up the mountain. Well, I like the fact that you've just asked my next question to me. When oh. I was going to ask it to you. <laughs> but between us, we can talk about it. I, look, I think there are, when you're playing, there are times often you sit there and think, why is the conductor not fixing that problem? And I think there are times when you've stood on the podium, you don't hear that problem. You hear an awful lot more from within the orchestra. It's like, you know, I always use the analogy that it's like a great engine, a wonderfully turbocharged V8 engine. But, you know, if you're stood on the street, you hear this noise. But as a player, you're one of the bits of that engine. You can see that maybe there's not enough oil in that bit and there's all the, 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 air, the air filter needs changing. Uh, and so you actually hear a lot more of the clicks, whirs and bangs from within than you do often when you're stood on the podium. So therefore, you know, you learn so much from within the section. You know, you, as a bass player, you're hearing everything above you. You're hit the ensemble the tuning as well, especially for you. As a second fiddle player, I was right in the middle of the, the stage. I, everything was going flying over my head from the wind and brass. You, there's so much stuff there that you you take away with you. And you, when you, there's a problem that you need to sort as a conductor, you think, oh, I know, I know how to fix this because uh, you know I know what the problems are from within. Do you do you agree? Especially, I'd like to know your experiences as a bass player, who's off more often than not would sit one side of the stage or the other. Occasionally, maybe at the back if you're doing a VE setting for Bruckner or Mahler. But even then, at the back, you've got everything in front of you. What were your experiences of? of how orchestras work and what do you regularly use now? Yeah, I mean, I think I, mean, I, I agree with your points entirely about it. And I can imagine being a second violinist, actually, it's a great instrument to learn to conduct because you're always in the middle of these rhythms and harmonies and locking mm. together winds and firsts and everything. And bass player, of course, no one ever listens to us. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Our job is just to accompany and, and where to stick a pizzicato and, and all those things. For me, 
the, the big things I learned um, were just to have such a respect for the musicians in the orchestra uh, and, and twofold with that. Firstly, how much the musicians cover things and fix things um, for conductors. Mm. Um, but secondly, how much musicians we need conductors. Mm. And I think, you know, I see a lot of young conductors when they start say, oh, you know, I just don't want to get in the way. The musicians know what to do. And well, then actually it's not true. Mm. I said, if you let an orchestra play on its own, after a while it gets slow and it becomes mezzo forte. Actually, you do need conductors. And if without that, they can do it on their own, but it takes a, t a lot more rehearsal and someone has to ultimately step into that void of leadership. So mm -hmm. musicians need conductors and conductors need musicians. And this is um, how, how this relationship works. So I think hearing great players around me all the time, amazing sounds and quality. The advantage for me was if I went to an orchestra when they played the first take and it was really good, or the first read through, I wasn't thinking, wow, it sounds like this, what do I say now? Mm. My oral perception of it was, was heightened as a result of playing in you know, the London Symphony Orchestra. So I was able to already get stuck in. I think the, uh, the other area was um, sort of rehearsal psychology mm. and <laughs> knowing and sort of, dare I use the word, smelling the atmosphere. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. Of, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. please use that word. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you like me would have sat there at times when you think, in the audience, you think, look, if I was conducting, I'd be calling a break now. Um, and you can smell things in the room. You can feel it. You think, right, this is the perfect time to call a tea break. And then the conductor will carry on for another 10 or 15 minutes. And they've lost the orchestra in that 10 or 15 minutes. You just, um, yeah, absolutely. You can, you can read the room, smell the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you, you as a result of that, you know when to, to drop in the humour, when to just to let, just to play. I mean, there's times when to, to get in and do the details. Other times, I mean, a colleague in the orchestra used to always joke about 2.50, 10 to 3. He said, Jerry Newsome, he always says, it's a nothing time. You've done 10 to 1 and 2 to 3. You're halfway through the first bit of the afternoon. You're tired. You're halfway to the next break. It's a nothing time. <laughs> that really stuck in my mind. And I always thought, yeah, well, what, when you get to those moments, just play. Just mm. that be a set time when you do a big section of music. Let them just run it. And other times when you get them fresh, go in and do some of the harder work. And that was that was really helpful. What, what I also found interesting was the inconsistency of the players' responses, mine included, is that a conductor is a great conductor if I played well. Mm. <laughs> and then you'd have other conductors come and the winds and brass would love them, but the strings would hate them. Mm. And then you have other conductors come and the, on one desk, you have someone who has more OCD tendencies, someone who's, who's a spontaneous risk taker would dislike the same conductor. And that was very useful for me because it, it stopped me being too care, too concerned about being liked by everybody because you just know it's impossible. There's no point trying. And if someone woken up in a bad mood or, you know, the guys next to them is irritating them. And if you look, and of course, as you know, if you look at musicians' faces for feedback, <laughs> you can get into trouble. But some of them, some of their happy faces look like a bulldog chewing a wasp. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... <laughs> can be a little scary. A little scary. Oh yeah, the, think... the psychological games of looking at an orchestra's faces as they're playing. Just don't go there. Yeah, it's not good. Um, so it's... I think it was a it was a complete package of, and what I haven't mentioned, of course, is is getting to to watch and learn from great. We had really great conductors. I mean, Sir Colin Davis when I was there, and then Valery Gergiev took over, and he, he we did some amazing things with him. And then you know, Maris Janssen would come. Simon would come. Um, I, I only worked with him once, but 
you know, John Elliott Gardner. So we really had just amazing conductors time and time. So to learn how they crafted rehearsals and concerts and everyone was so totally different, um, that really helped me, I, I think. So as you said, the perfect excuse to leave the LSO um, is that you were offered Chief Conductor of the North Shopping Symphony Orchestra, straight into a Chief position. How did you find that? Um, and it's not just about programming and sorting out the programmes for a year. How did you find learning about their employment laws or whatever, all of that, the hiring and firing, what, what was it like for you? And did you enjoy it straight, literally? That I can't think of anybody who's done it so quickly from playing in the bass section to being a chief conductor. I was really fortunate. Um, so yeah, I did a concert with them in December, 2010. And I just, I was there at the right time. And, and mm. you know, they, 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 they took a punt on me, but they're well known for taking punts on young conductors. Yes. The first, the first job of Herbert Blomstead of, I mean, Franz Valsamost, and he, he went from there to the LPO. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's, they, they, they're good, they're good like that. And of course the CBSO is, is amazing at taking you know, young conductors who end up being brilliant. They're well known for that, of course. So for me, it was an amazing experience because, it, I mean, of course I was doing everything for the first time. So mm. that was fantastic. I was able to design seasons and build seasons. I didn't have any role in hiring or firing. Um, they would ask my advice or my, what I felt about certain musicians, but um, they knew that that position typically is not for someone more than four, three, four, maybe five years. Um, so there's no point asking me for someone who's going to be there for 20, 25 years. So I, I helped and, and guided, but we did some fantastic programs um, and concerts. And I just was swallowing a repertoire. Yeah. I was doing so many things, just, I mean, entire concerts of pieces for the first time. And I was always very serious about learning the music. Um, and they were very patient and very good and, you know, at times I, I drove them too hard, of course, you make those mistakes and you, you want to fix everything all the time and think mm. unless you do it, it won't happen. And then you realize, come on, Francis, sort it out, just let, let them play. Mm. Um, and then that, that got easier. Um, and then after after four years, you know, that was that was time. And I, I got offered the position in, in Florida as well. So I, you know, I was then transitioning to another stage of my life. I was, I was married and, and different things. But yeah, I absolutely loved it. And and it was, and of course in Sweden, they all speak such perfect English. They love the British culture and humor. Um, and they were so warm and so good. I mean, the, the I think of some of the concerts we did, they were just, I mean, a really good concert hall, always nice audiences and just so good. And I absolutely loved my time there. We're wonderful people. Mm. Um, as you said, on to the Florida Orchestra, um, where you're still music director, and also since last year you've been chief conductor of the Staatsphilharmonie Rhineland-Pfalz, where you you currently are working in Ludwigshafen. Um, how do you find with a young family crossing the Atlantic on a regular basis, working four or five weeks in Germany and then coming back to the States? Um, and also a rather COVID direct question, which I haven't really asked, is uh, is has that proved to be a problem now? 
um, working between the two places because of traveling. It's something that lots of people are saying that, you know, maybe conductors won't be able to travel quite as much. Orchestras won't be able to tour anything like as much for a while. How are you finding it currently? But also, how did you find it before COVID, that sort of time constraint thing between Germany and the States? Well, I'll tell you firstly about um, the Florida auction, and I'll, and I'll come to the second part of your question then. So the Florida auction, um, they they asked me to do a, a guest week. They were looking for a conductor. I hadn't heard of the orchestra beforehand, so I didn't know much about them, but I said, sure. And then I met Cindy, um, my wife now. She was in, um, in London working, but she's from Florida. Right. She's from Tampa. Yeah. Um, and though she had no intention of moving back there at the time, that's sort of the, how that timing worked. And then I did this concert in October and it was um, Britain's Symphony de Requiem, Mozart, D minor concerto and Alsace Spadaxa de Flustra. So it was Ooh, a nice. great, great program. And then they said they wanted me to come back and they sort of engineered another concert for me in May um, 2014. And I went back and did that. And then they offered me the job. And I, they didn't know that my wife was three months pregnant. So what it meant was we could live near her mom and her dad in Tampa. So for us as a family, it was really fabulous. Although that wasn't the reason I took the job. I took it because I saw an orchestra of such potential. I mean, Tampa Bay has 3 million people there and mm. it's growing. I think a thousand people move to Florida every day. It's wow. astonishing the growth. Mm. And St. Petersburg is such an arts district now. And so it's, it's a really happening place and it's, yeah. it's very vibrant and exciting. So that's how that worked. For me, COVID, I think could have been a real nightmare. Um, but what saved me was my brilliantly organized and, and a clearly prophetic wife had, had uh, decided that I must get my American citizenship as soon as possible. Mm. And so in December, I became a US citizen and I've got British and, and American. So it meant that for me traveling back and forth, I'm in the best position because yes. I can always get back into America. I can always come to Europe. Yeah. Um, so that's made a big difference. Um, like most orchestras, Florida shut down in March and we'll, st we'll do our first concerts in three weeks. Mm. Um, but in Ludwigshafen, they did between May and July, 150 concerts. Wow. Now, some of those were small, you know, tiny chamber things, and, but some were big concerts you know, yeah. with me yeah. doing ensembles of 15 or 20 players. And then since September, they kept going and doing more and more. So they've really done a brilliant job here with the intendant Bayer Feldman um, of just keeping going. So that's been great for me just to have a lot of work and to, to I've probably conducted more concerts than most conductors have during COVID. Mm. I've been very, very fortunate like that. Um, but the balance of it is not easy. And as you say, I mean, I've been here now, this is my fifth week and I go back on Saturday um, and it's time. Mm. So COVID in some ways has made it easier because you kind of do things in blocks and not you know, higgledy-piggledy back and forth, as it yeah. can often be the case. But I'm really keen to, to see my wife and daughter and get home. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Um, I'm assuming, because just looking down at the, my crib sheet, um, dear listeners, I always write a double-paged crib sheet on every conductor before I speak to them. This doesn't all come off the top of my head. Some of it does. But I'm assuming that... You know, you, you were chief conductor in Sweden for four years and now in these two places since. Well, no, there was an overlap between North Shopping and the Florida Orchestra and now, and now obviously an overlap with, with um, Ludwigshafen and the Florida Orchestra, which means that you don't necessarily or haven't necessarily done a, a vast amount of the hamster wheel of guest conducting. 
um, a phrase I use because the hamsters seem to like being on the wheel um, and sometimes it's difficult to get off. Um, when you guessed it or when you get you you guessed, do you have a specific plan for meeting Yorkshire for the first time? Um, are there pieces you always try and take with you as, you know, they, these are Michael Francis pieces I would take for the first time or want to take? How do you approach it all? Yes, I mean, guesting is, of course, tremendously exciting, but also mm. reasonably stressful. I mean, for, for, for conductors, we're not usually nervous for the concerts. It's always for the first rehearsal. It's the first Absolutely. rehearsal with a new orchestra. It's the first rehearsal with a new orchestra and repertoire you're doing for the first time. That's sort of, that's the, that's the, that's, that's it. That's the tough bit. Mm. Um, I've become much better about taking pieces that I know well to orchestras. I haven't always done it. I was thinking um, about a program I did with the North American Orchestra, which was Jan, all for the first time. Janoszek Lackian dances, Glasnost Violin Concerto, Inesco Romanian Rhapsody Number One, Bartok Divertimento, and Kadai Dances of Galanta. Wow. And I did all this because when I took it two years before that, I didn't know much about conducting. I thought, oh, I like those pieces. Mm. Course, yeah, guess what? I didn't get asked back. <laughs> Not surprisingly. <laughs> I mean, they got through it. It was recognizable. But could I do a great artistic job? No, yeah. because I didn't. I wasn't inside me. So now I'm much more respectful. And I did a lot of jump-ins at the beginning. Yeah. Um, very last minute, I was because I think the British training, I was good at sight reading. So I did a lot of that. Um, and now I do, I'm much more careful about what I do. I don't mm. have to do the big jump-ins as much. Um, but, you know, sometimes it happens. So now I tend to take things I know very well. Um, but for guesting with orchestras, I mean, as you know, I mean, both as a player and as a conductor, really, it all happens in the first five minutes. Or so. yeah. You just, person stands up, starts conducting, you watch them. And, they, and as a conductor now, you realize how much you're watching everybody mm. and you're sussing out the orchestra. How do they respond? Psychologically, you're looking out. You're looking out for who are the alphas and who are the, where, where's, where's it going to be tricky? Where's it going to work? And mm. how's it going to go? And also you're just feeling how the music happens and trying to relax them and above all, just make music. And you never know how it's going to go. No. And then you have weeks that you think are fantastic and they, the orchestra gives you mixed feedback and weeks that you thought you weren't at your best and they love you. Yeah. So it's... It's just not an exact science because people are not. No, no, that's that's so true. You're right. The first five minutes, you know, I, th I think somebody's cruelly quoted somebody that you know you can decide on whether any good by how they walk in the room. I think that's you know <laughs> that's not fair. But I, I do remember a trumpet player in, in the CBSO telling me the quickest reaction he ever saw to a guest conductor was. Uh, after the first downbeat, which was a short stabbed chord of a piece. And he said he saw 85 people's heads drop in, in disappointment. <laughs> well, after the first downbeat, everybody just went, oh. Because, you know, then you think, well, I've got five hours today, five hours tomorrow, dress rehearsal the three hours, concert, maybe a repeat concert Thursday. And after one chord, everybody just went, oh. You know, and that, which is terribly unfair, but actually it's what it can be sometimes like. It, yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's tough. I, think, I mean, for example, Beethoven Five is a, is. I mean, I do. I have guessed with it a fair bit, but it's that's a tough piece to guess with because the mm. beginning doesn't work until you've explained it. Because you either go da 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 da, da cut off extra yes. bar, um, bub, or you do bum 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 bum. Yes, and yeah. that that's always a bit tricky. So that's a piece where you can't immediately run it. You have to fix that, and that sort of sense of inter interjection and rehearsing straight away is a little awkward um, and I'd much rather, because my basic method is to always run the entire piece straight away. Yeah. Um, especially if it's an Elgar symphony, just run the whole thing, then go back and then start, you know, and then from that point, because 
they know what they have to fix, which mm. is saves you a lot of trouble. The question I ask every conductor, and I'm intrigued to know your answer, because um, first of all, you said you really had no formal training as a conductor. And secondly, as you said, you did a lot of jump-ins. So this question is, when you come to learn a score, do you have a method uh, that you use on most occasions? And do you write in your scores? Are you a marker of scores? I am, but lots of others aren't. It's about 50-50 split at the moment. Uh, everybody has a different method. What is yours? Um, does it differ when, or did it differ when, you know, you had two days notice uh, compared to 12 months notice? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, always a fascinating question. And I'm always intrigued to know how other conductors learn it as well, because, you know, some people could just open a score and hear it perfectly in the head straight away and you know, I'm not one of those. I have to work at it. It's quite, it's quite hard to do that. So if it's a two-day or a one-day jump in and it's unusual repertoire, I stick a recording on and learn it. I mean, this is be pragmatic. I mean, I mean, you just do what you need to do to get the score in your head. Ultimately, what the process is get the score into your head. That's what you're doing when you're studying. And then you're anticipating, you're thinking and all these things. So with, when I have time, which is most of the time now, um, what the way I do it is I... First, I open the score, read it through, make as much information as I can, try to hear it in my head. Then very often I listen to a good recording of it straight away. And then I'll sort of put it aside. And then I spend most of my time reading about it. So I really like to read articles. I, I often, to me, it's a great joy. And this sounds very nerdy. If I can find a PhD or, or an online article, I use JSTOR a lot. I read a lot of books around it. So I really want to understand where the composer is, how the piece is written. And then I find when I come back to it, my process is pretty clear. I and mean, I sort of do the big analysis, the big structural stuff of exposition developments. Then I break it down into phrases. Then I always do, well, I try to always do um, a horizontal, uh, sorry, vertical analysis of the harmony. Mm. Um, intellectually, that, that means a huge amount to me to know the harmonic rhythm. And I always conduct at my best when I know the harmonic rhythm of the piece. Um, that doesn't work if you're doing Verez Amarique, then you have other things. But so that, and then, and then I go through each group of instruments of so all the strings. I do that in, in, in a section. Then I'll go through the percussion, um, harps, and all the other unusual instruments. Um, then I'll do the brass, checking sure I actually know where they're transposing. Can't say it's yes. an area of tremendous strength, but I do know how to do it. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then all the winds. And by the time I've done that, and I'm thinking, I'm marking, I'm writing. I'm trusting my dramatic instincts, uh, and I, I do make notes of my score. I do yeah. think about it. I do use pen, um, colored pencils for new pieces. I, I, I use that probably less now than I did. Um, I don't need to mark my scores quite as I did when I started, you know, all the cueing. That, that's mm -hmm. not so necessary, but I do, I do use it to write in thoughts I have. So that when I, because the main thing is, is that when I come back to it, I don't want to start again. No. I don't want to, I want to use it as a reference point. Um, and of course, I'm not preparing things I'm going to say in rehearsal and writing them in. I don't do that. You know. Oh, here's a joke in case that they get tired at 250. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think musicians are pretty sharp. They'll see through those ones straight away. Yeah. So exactly. I, I think really it's, I mean, I think so, to summarize, it's, it's, it's seeing the biggest possible picture and then just narrowing it down to actually the why that yeah. thing exists there in the score. Why did the composer do it? Uh, and, our, you know, as you know, our, our biggest job is to take this enormously 
brilliant music by these wonderful composers, help the musicians play at their best. We just facilitate that so that the audience can have a life-changing experience which understands themselves and the lives of others around them. Mm. We're, we're not that important except to facilitate this process for people to be transformed in the audience and hopefully for the musicians to have a wonderful time. But that's not the first thing. The first thing is the audience. Michael, it's 10 questions time. And so, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I think my favorite noise is um, my daughter had a playful five-year-old squeal of delight running up and giving me a hug when I land back at Tampa Airport. Mm. Um, that's gotta be it. There's also the rare sound of me striping a golf ball with an iron and flushing it. It doesn't happen very often, but that, that sound of a golf ball fizzing is amazing. I'd say a sound that I, I really dislike um, is my brothers know it, of course, and they do it all the time, eating noises. Oh. I, I can't bear other people's eating noises. Is, that's, that, is, that is the veritable nail down the blackboard for me. And I, I, I can actually struggle to, to, to talk to people if they, are, if they are noisy eaters. It's just awful and really shallow of me. I apologize. I don't care how shallow it is. I agree with you. Um, a friend of mine is one of those. I, I, yeah, it drives me insane. You know, nobody's given me that answer before, but, and I wonder why. But yeah, um, brilliant answer. <laughs> um, the next one if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing well actually this is an interesting question so I'm very strict about taking one day off a week I don't touch any music on that day off so yeah. this to me happens every week I, I always do it so um, I do a lot of hiking and if I can play a game of golf that's heaven I mean that's four or five hours of me thinking about how bad I am at golf not about conducting yes um, walking family I mean I live in Florida so I'm near the beach reading I do listen to jazz but I never listen to classical music on my day off so it's a real real variety but the best of all always with family wife and daughter who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear well I think we all have to sign a, a non-Kleiber clause because we'll always say Carlos Kleiber so um, outside of that, I tell you a conductor I always listen to is Charles McCarris. Mm. And I didn't ever get to play for him or meet him, but he's such an intelligent and thoughtful and dramatic way of dealing with the classical composers. I, I just find he's so spot on, nearly, I, I nearly or invariably, um, well, I, I do, and I invariably agree with what he does. Mm. Um, I think Charles Munch and mm. Munch, I mean, the Boston, his, his sort of things like the Franck Symphony, the way that he shows how you can just be so flexible and free and dramatic and is amazing. Uh, Ravinsky, mm. I think, you know, there's that compelling video on YouTube of him conducting Shostakovich mm. when you just see him not moving and just using his eyebrow and you just think this is the dark arts. Yes. Um, and I love, I mean, you know, Sir Colin Davis, of course, he you know, recently passed, but playing for him was such a highlight. The sound that he got out of an orchestra, this freedom was amazing so there's there's a selection and who would be a favorite current conductor actually i think that's a relatively easy question there's i mean i love ivan fisher i think mm. he's a he's a conductor that i'll always listen to what he does i think he's so thoughtful and so musical mm. um, i mean his bartok recordings his mahler and and Borchak, just they're just superb i think Tielemann in his repertoire again the way that he tackles schumann he, he finds fantasy 
in a way that I, I hadn't thought of, but him, it seems just like breathing. I think um, Kirill Petrenko seems amazing to me. Mm. I think he seems the real deal. What I've seen of him on the digital concert hall, I'm just so delighted to see. He's so, so serious and so honest and it doesn't seem to be about him, just the music. And I mean, the commitment that he's getting is just, and the level of playing. So, I mean, there's an example, but I, I think he's so exciting for me, for the whole industry to see this absolute earnest, um, earnest passion for the truth of music and not about the celebrity and the, you know, as we know, some of the other stuff that can come with our job, mm. uh, I find deeply encouraging. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, I think probably looking back, it was that first time I did that John Adams concert on, on, on no, virtually no <laughs> rehearsal. Because I remember my brain actually ached after that concert for just sheer concentration. But I mean, there's other pieces. I, you know, I did Verez Amarique, and when you do these for the first time, and most pieces you do for the first time are tough. I did a program in, um, in MDR last year, which was, actually it was in January this year, COVID's messed up my timing. And it was Barbara Medea's Dance of Vengeance, Andrew Norman's Switch, which is a monster, because every bar changes pattern and if you get it wrong. And then I did Belshazzar's Feast for the first time. So mm. that was a brain acre. Um, but emotionally, I, I find Tchaikovsky 6 really hard um, to conduct just because of how much of himself he laid bare and how much you have to give um, in that piece. It's sort of, it goes to such a dark place that I find that one really tough physically, mm. but also emotionally. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure it would be a piece I would want to do for four or five or six nights running on a tour. I think mm. it would take an awful lot out of you. Um, and I've done it. I've done it three. I've done it four times, three times in a week, and by the end of that week, I'm I'm dead. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, aside from the annoying new thing we have to think about of masks and hand sanitizer, the mm. things I have to travel now are more a state of my age and doing too much sport as a kid, which is a back stretcher. Mm. I have to take in a travel pillow for my neck, which is annoying. Um, but uh, actually, the thing that makes the biggest difference is a good pair of walking shoes, because then you can walk and see the cities. Where I am here in Ludwigshafen, we're near the Felserwald, which is stunning forest. So getting out and hiking or just walking a city is um, enormously important. And, you know, their shoes, if I wanted to play a game of golf in, I could turn up and do that. So to me, that, that seemingly obvious choice actually gives a huge realm of freedom and otherwise a busy schedule. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I bet my answer is the same as everybody else, and that would be um, that to be able to sleep in your own bed every night <laughs> or, or just travel with you or have your family travel with you everywhere. And it's mm. as simple as that. It's just the only thing I would really want to change is to be more, spend more time at home. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, it was a popular answer early on uh, and then it disappeared for a while. But yeah, I, I mean, it's still very much... Uh, a drag about being a conductor on the road you know like you if you have two jobs as chief or even if you're a regular guesting all around the place yeah it can be a a big drag well maybe with COVID and conductors are now thinking gosh I want to get away from the family you never know <laughs> <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt oh I'd want to be a cricketer uh, I mean I'd want to be a fast bowler uh, I sort of this is a very a strange rest, uh, re reference most people won't know, but I'm sort of like a, a modern day Fanny de Villiers. 
lots of attitude as a fast bowler, but absolutely no pace whatsoever. So for me, I, I'd always want to be a cricketer. And if and failing that, um, I'd love to have been a rugby player or something. But um, so as a, a professional sportsman, if I had any element of talent, I would have pursued it. Cricket, as the listeners will know, is my game. And I can still bowl vaguely vaguely well uh, <laughs> uh, despite my being hit in the face when the batsman hit it back in my face um, what's interesting and through these podcasts is that one day I'm going to book a box at Lord's and I shall invite you Mark Wigglesworth Ed Gardner Bramwell Tovey I'm trying to think there's another one as well Will, Daniel, Will, Harding. Daniel Harding Daniel yes, Harding yes thank you yeah. Daniel, Daniel Harding uh, I think I could fill a, a box with eight conductors. <laughs> we'd all have a brilliant time because we'd all be just watching the cricket. We'd never mention yeah. music once, I would suspect. But yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's, well, it's the, the best of all sports. I agree. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? So whenever I come back to the UK, the thing I always crave are is rather strange. I want a pint of real beer, you know, mm. not <laughs> um, I tepid and not too strong and not yeah. fizzy. Um, then I always want a packet of pickled onion monster munch, which is stupid, <laughs> and a Yorkie because you can't get those things anywhere else. And those are the no. things I always crave. So, but um, I think I used to always think I wanted my grandmother's she's Irish spuds bacon and cabbage. But actually, now that I've eaten really good food in good restaurants, I, I would be different. For me, the main course would be lamb, a rack mm. of lamb, and some outrageous 1959, whatever, Lafitte Rothschild Bordeaux, something which you couldn't possibly afford normally. I'd want that. Um, and beforehand, some, some great fish, I don't mind what, but I would want a fantastic white burgundy, some Pliny Montrachet, something brilliant, and dessert, lemony, and then loads of cheese. And then do what you want with me. I'll be fine. And then <laughs> a bit of a bit of port and I, a wee dram of something at the end of it. I'm good to go. Sounds wonderful. I'm I'm salivating thinking about it. That sounds <laughs> great. Um, Michael, it's been a real pleasure, a real joy. Lovely to talk to you, especially about our similar experiences about being orchestral musicians and what we've learned from inside and outside. So uh, either at the box at Lords when I booked it for all of us conductors, <laughs> or just we'll, we'll meet over a pint of real ale, and I hope to see you very yeah. soon. Great pleasure. Thank you, Mike, and thank you for this marvellous podcast. It was really tremendous. Thank you. A Mike on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. After we had finished recording this episode, Michael Francis and I carried on chatting for about an hour, and during this time we discussed whether conductors are born, or could they be made and whether the principle of 10,000 hours of learning has any bearing on the answer to this question. This is now available as a Patreon-exclusive mini-episode. Just click the link in the show notes below, and after arriving at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, you will find out how to subscribe and hear this episode and much more, all for the price of one of those tepid pints of beer. Next time, I chat with a Peruvian conductor who has held title positions all across the globe, from Norway to New Zealand. He has spent a lot of his career working in the United States, which is where he has just started an undergraduate conducting program. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>